welcome to episode 318 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, Jason is talking to JPL and NASA research scientist, Laura Kerber. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. It's uh, great to meet you. Um, and I'm really excited to ask you about your role at NASA. I mean, Justin's told me a little bit, um, gave me a little bit of background, but I want to hear, hear all about it. So what do you do specifically at NASA? So my official title is research scientist, um, but that means a lot of different things. I'm on several different missions. I'm the deputy project scientist of the Mars Odyssey mission, which is a orbiter around Mars since 2001. And then um, right now I'm the principal investigator on a proposed mission that we're proposing to the next NASA. It's called the Discovery Call. So okay. missions of a certain size. And this particular mission is called Moondiver, and it's a mission to the moon. Nice. Okay, so is that pretty typical, though, that you'll be involved in multiple missions at multiple phases, something that's sort of what, it, what we call a legacy mission or something that's like barely alive or it's already been picked over and it's like, well, there might be something interesting here, so we just got to keep people on it, keep the, whereas something that is kind of in action and something that's like maybe three years out. I mean, so how did you have a whole pipeline of things? Yes. Yeah, so usually we do, uh, as a research scientist, I'll be involved in fundamental research where I'll try and get grants from NASA on a variety of whatever topics I'm interested in. That's one part of my work. And then working at JPL as opposed to at a university, then we have an opportunity to be involved in all these missions. So if there's a mission going on that needs you for some reason, Mars 2020 is a mission that's launching in the year 2020. So a lot of people are getting pulled in on that to do various tasks. And then we have tons of missions in operation. Curiosity rover, which is at Mars. Opportunity rover, which is at Mars. We're not sure if it's still alive or not. <laughs> we're still waiting to hear back from it. And then all of these orbiters, moon orbiters. And then we're always working on missions for the future. So at some point, we know that certain missions are going to end and we want additional missions. So we're always trying to win missions for the lab. And then it kind of, you're usually involved in many different parts of that process. So do you have different roles in each mission? So in one case, you're sort of, you help out. One, you're leading a team. One, you're leading the whole project is that right that's works? exactly it so sometimes they'll want me for a specific task they'll say okay you're you know i sometimes work with spectrometers so we have a technology development program where we're trying to put a spectrometer on this novel kind of rover can you come and make sure we're getting good data and can you advise us on how we would deploy this instrument etc and then sometimes I'm on the side where it's more programmatic. I'm saying, okay, what scientists are going to work on what and what kinds of data should we be taking in an active mission around Mars, for example. And then sometimes, yeah, like you're saying, for the principal investigator thing, I have a more umbrella role where I'm looking over the whole project and saying, uh, what do we need to do in order to get the appropriate science that we need? And then writing that up in a proposal and submitting that. Right, right. So... How do you get pulled into these? Is there, is there something that like, hey, that's a cool project. I'm going to put my name on a list, you know, on a wiki, like an internal wiki that says, hey, who wants to be part of this? Or is it like you're having lunch with someone and they're like, oh, you know, it's a cool project. You should meet so-and-so. They need a, 
you know, blah, 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 or that, is it, uh, how yeah, does it work? mostly the latter is how it works. We all have group supervisors. We have this kind of um, hierarchy. It's called the matrix organization. So we have all the projects are on one side of the matrix and all of the organizations are on the other. So the organizations feed people to the projects. So okay. project comes to your organization and says, we really need someone with this expertise. Your supervisor will say, oh, okay, I got this person. I know who it is. That's how a lot of it happens, especially for engineers. And then the scientists are a little more entrepreneurial where like I have a salary, but I have to fill it with projects. And so mm. I'm like, okay, I have 50% on this, 25% on this. I need a final 25%. I'm looking for something. I have lunch with people. You know, we figure something right. out. Right. You're like, come on, give me, give me in on this. Deal yeah. me in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a lot of that kind of stuff on the projects, especially in early in development, if you get in really early in the development, then you can either say, you know, I really only like formulation. I like thinking of new ideas and I'm not into closing. Or you can say, yeah, I want to, I really love this project. I want to follow it all the way through. Right. So you can kind of determine. Now, did, do you sometimes, is it easy to get out of a project if you're on something and you decide this thing is a Sometimes nightmare. it is. I, it I depends wanna... on how much other work you have. So you can, okay. if you have a lot of other work, you can say like, oh, I'm so busy. I can't, I can't be on this project right. it's anymore. It's a politically correct way of getting out <laughs> exactly. of it. I'm just so overwhelmed. I can't give you guys, I don't have enough bandwidth to give <laughs> right. you guys what you need. Why you should find someone else as opposed to like the project lead is an idiot. Yeah. Like, so sometimes if it's a really important project, it's, it's hard to get out of. If it has yeah. a deadline that's coming up really quickly. Yeah. Cause they're like, what, what are you doing? Yeah. You're killing us. Yeah. Like, this is saying, oh, I want to do this little side research project where I'm working on my own thing, you know, going out into the field and measuring wind or something. They're gonna, and they're, they're saying, no, we have a flight deadline that's in a month <laughs> like and it has to deliver. You know, it's a billion dollar project. Then you have, okay, you're going to do cool. it. That's not cool. That'd be that's, like the last project you're on. You're like, yeah. all right, fine, you're out. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, why don't you get the door there? Because yeah. yeah, leave your leave your badge. Um, so I, I want to ask you about, I want to get into the missions, but before I want to kind of frame this, maybe get a little bit of your background and, and some stuff. Um, well, well, first of all, one thing I'd like to clarify. So you say JPL and NASA. And I think a lot of the people in their minds that don't understand, are they the same thing? Are they different or whatever? Because we're here in Pasadena, California, which is right down the street from Caltech. Um, and it's a five-minute drive, um, it, which is run by Caltech, correct? Yes. Did I say JPL or did I say Caltech? Okay, so JPL. So JPL is just on the street. Caltech runs JPL. Yes. For NASA, right? right? Sort of a contract with. So a lot of people who are professors at Caltech are kind of have dual appointments, right? They have mm -hmm. some kind of responsibility at Caltech. Not not all, I'm, I'm guessing, right? Not all, yeah. But, um, and then, of course, NASA, we, we know they have something in Houston and they have Cape Canaveral. So what's the relationship there? So NASA has a bunch of different centers that are spread throughout the country. And then the people that work at those centers are civil servants and they're government employees. Mm -hmm. And then JPL is a very special case. It's kind of grandfathered in because it was a federally funded research center, kind of like Los Alamos or Oak Ridge Labs in Tennessee. Um, so it's a federally funded research center managed by Caltech on behalf of NASA. So okay. what that means functionally is that I have a NASA badge that gets me into any one of the NASA centers but I'm not a civil servant. I'm not a federal employee. So you don't have the, you know, they have like those pay grades and that sort of yeah, retirement, you know, the, the retirement GS, pension, yeah. pet, all the G, we what's it called? The GS uh, scale. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so we don't have the, um, and we, they can fire us basically. Right. <laughs> it's a lot easier to fire us. Okay. But yeah. they don't, I mean, they don't usually. They don't fire, tend to fire a lot of JP employees. Okay. Yeah. But, um, so you're an employee of. J of JPL or, or I'm technically Caltech? a Caltech employee. Okay. 
right. and so certain things it's are to our advantage and certain things to our disadvantage so you know they can fire us unlike the civil servants um but and we don't have the same pension system or anything but then um say if the government shuts down mm-hmm. it's not always us shutting down or if the government has certain travel restrictions it doesn't always apply to us so right a little bit of a special we live case. in a gray area and um what i like I, the gray area myself yes, right it's kind of nice <laughs> sometimes if it suits us we're part of nasa and then where it doesn't suit us right, we say, right. oh, we're actually caltech but <laughs> you can reframe it right yeah and it originally the lab was a army laboratory um before it became well, right what was it that guy parsons who started it and yeah he and a bunch of uh, i've seen like Frank history Molina, channel or something yeah. they were setting off rockets out there and the guy with president caltech after they blew up like a building was like all right you idiots like look if you're gonna have your rockets you got to go down this to this open and back then it was just like middle of nowhere right right exactly and so they went out there and then they were doing all this rocketry and at the time rocketry was pretty new and then the army came along and said you know, we're trying to take our airplanes off of these runways, but the runways are too short and we'd like some a little oomph to get us off yeah. this runway. Could you attach your rockets to our planes and then we could get off the runways faster? And that's why we're the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Now I'm going to I'm going to win a a, a a trivia. Yeah. Give <laughs> a moment for that. So, um all right, well that's cool. Okay, so let's let's go into your background a little bit. So, okay, first of all, so Obviously, a, a place the scale of, of JPL. So if anyone hasn't been to JPL, it's like a campus. It's like, you know, I don't know how many buildings there are, 30 buildings. I mean, it's like the size of like a university campus or something, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so you have scientists, you have engineers, you have technicians, you have all their kind of support staff and paperwork people and janitors and everything else that you would expect at a giant campus. But you are a scientist, is that yes. right? So you're a PhD in, yes, that's right. in what? In geological sciences is my technical geological degree. Geological sciences, yeah. okay. So I have a, two master's degrees. I have a master's degree in geology and one in engineering. And then I have a what PhD kind of engi- wait, what in kind geology. Of uh, fluid mechanics. Okay, P- okay, master's in mechanical engineering, fluid dynamics, which, yeah. is, a, which is a branch of mechanical engineering, right? Some uh, sort of like yeah. a specialty. A lot of it's, people do. It's, um, f- yeah, it's just fluid mechanics is fluid mechanics. what they call it. <laughs> my, my, two of my brothers are engineers, and he did a lot of fluid mechanics. And he, he's a mechanical engineer, and he always likes to talk about his fluid dynamics. Uh huh, yeah. He thinks it sounds really badass. <laughs> he's like, well, this is really, really, you know, like, yeah. oh, I get it. You're smart. I got it. I got it. <laughs> and so, were you doing that when you were in your geology master's and your engineering master's? Were you doing the sort of simultaneously taking a bunch of classes? Like, oh, well, I'll just stick around for those six months and, and, and get both? Or, were you, or did you do them one after the other? How'd that work out? So I did my, uh, it was my geology master's I did first. And then my fluid mechanics master's I did at the same time as I was getting my PhD. So they in were all. In geology, your yeah. PhD in geology. So, so they so were you, all at Brown University. And I was Never taking, yeah, that- <laughs> some random school, like <laughs> most people haven't heard of it. It's in, um, so I was taking all these classes in fluid mechanics because I was studying lava and I was studying wind flow over mm. complex surfaces. So I started taking all these fluid mechanics classes and eventually I decided that I had almost enough to get a master's in fluid mechanics. Might as well check the box. Might as Yeah. So I took some extra classes in continuum mechanics and renewable energy and some random things and got the degree 
So was this thing like your your PhD advisor was say, listen, Laura, mm, I would recommend doing a little bit of this, or was it just something you just went off? This is something kind of on your own? I was doing, and then um, he's the kind of guy that says, okay, you got to focus on one thing and get through. He wanted me to get through in five years, and so I actually took a lot of those classes on the sly because <laughs> <laughs> he would be t- he'd be like he would be like, his finger I think you. you should focus. I took a lot of classes on, so I took all these fluid mechanics classes, but I also took Spanish and I took. Um, Japanese gamelan. Which really would have pissed him off, yeah, right? Like, He'd be like, what? One, one day I was, we would have Spanish on Thursdays was at a coffee shop. And so I was at the coffee shop and one of my other professors from the geology department came in to get coffee and I was like hiding behind the book. <laughs> and uh, luckily he hadn't had his coffee yet, so he didn't notice me. And so I was safe. But then, so when I graduated, um, my advisor was reading out all my extracurriculars and other classes I'd taken saying, what the heck is all of this? I told him about the masters, like when I had one more class left to go. And right, I said, there's nothing to argue yeah. about at that point. Right? So he was, and then now he was like, "I'm proud of you for having done that." And I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> well, you can see from a risk management standpoint. I mean, these so these professors probably have a number of PhD students who just never get their PhD, or they right. take on for years, and they're like, "This is kind of a nightmare," and it probably wastes their time because they're like, "Yes, constantly trying to cajole them, finish up, let's get this stuff written up, let's finish these results," and it's just so he's like, "Look, just look." That's enough. Just getting a PhD is enough. Yeah. <laughs> you can go back and take Spanish classes <laughs> after that. It's like, that would be the recommendation. But right. you, you were my, little... my thought was that I'm never going to be able to afford tuition at Brown. While I was at Brown, as a PhD student, they pay your tuition. So I could take an unlimited number of classes. Mm. I didn't have to pay per class. So I said, okay, this is the last chance I have to get a kind of education like this. I'm going to take as many classes as I can. And that's mm. what I did. <laughs> so was that that's when you were graduate school, where did you go to undergrad? I went to undergrad at um, Pomona College, which yeah, right out I, here in my, Southern California. My, my best, one of my best friends growing up went to Pomona College. Oh, I used okay. to visit him in spring break, come out from Chicago, and I'd be like, oh, <laughs> this is, this is, this is living. Like, this is not college, this is Club Med. Exactly, People are lying yeah. out, like, studying on the lawns. I mean, I, you know, back in Chicago, it's like 20 degrees and snow. It was, it was unfair. And, um, yeah, so so Pomona for our listeners, Pomona is yeah forty five minutes to an hour drive, depending on traffic uh, mm-hmm. from from Pasadena. It's outside of L A. It's uh, part of the Claremont colleges. So there's Harvey Mudd and Pritzker and Scripps and, and, and yeah, Claremont McKenna. Claremont McKenna. So it's a bunch of little tiny colleges all next to each other, which together make kind of a big campus. It's really mm-hmm. pretty, really nice. So it must have been an enjoyable experience. Oh I'm yeah, it, so was was like it was as paradise. nice as it looked. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. It was like a, I would go home for the summer. I live in Denver and I'd be working at uh, my dad's warehouse. I was a forklift operator. <laughs> and so then I would think about, you know, just be stacking bags of salt all summer <laughs> and th- dreaming about this paradise of Pomona College. It's going to go back to. Get me back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quincy, San- and my wife, Sandy, was, uh, she was recruited by, um, I think it was Claremont for track. She, she considered going out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Pomona, was it Pomona or Claremont? I don't know. But um, wh- what were you majoring in as an undergrad? Geology. So it's been geology all the way for yeah, you. Yeah, so I had is... a little bit in undergrad. It was a slightly combined major where it was um, planetary geology and space science is what it was called. It was a flavor of the geology major. And so and then I was a math minor. And so the geology major that I had, I had to take several astronomy classes in order to make this special flavor of the geology major. Okay, so that leads me to a couple of things. Okay, so um, so you've always been leaning towards space. 
from the begin from the beginning. It sounds like it well, wasn't I, just like I want to yes. go and look at the Earth's mantle, study the Earth's mantle, or something like. No, I, I want. I was I'm always kind of like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. And then uh, I okay. met a guy who was in astronaut training when I was in high school. Mm. He was in my Taekwondo class, <laughs> and so mm. he was a test. He was now a commercial pilot, but he had been a test pilot for many years, and he had gone through the whole astronaut program and never become an astronaut in the end. And so he said. Well, that's this. He was kind of like, this is your future. And he laid out like all of the barriers between mm. you and being an astronaut and all the things that you actually did to become an astronaut. And I thought, well, I don't actually like doing many of those steps. You know, I right. want to go to space eventually. But right. what I like is space and I like rocks and I love being outside. I love camping. And so then I, when I went to Pomona, I was like still thinking, oh, I'd love to be an astronomer or an astronaut or something. And then I met a guy, I was on a midnight hike to a waterfall and he, he was like, oh yeah, I just got back from Mexico and Hawaii and all these other exotic locations. And I was thinking, you know, what major are you? And he said, right. I'm a geology major. We travel the world and look at cool rocks. And then, you know, <laughs> and so my geology major, um, my professor who then became my advisor, he was a... Eric Grofies was his name, and he was a planetary geologist, and he talked about, you can actually do geology in space. And I thought, well, that seems like the perfect job ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you still, I still get to travel a lot and go camping outside and do field work, but it's mm. usually in areas of the Earth that are most like Mars or most like some other, mm. the moon. Right, right. So... I want to talk, I mean, I want to explore that in a minute, but I want to ask you this. So you said you were a math minor. Yes. And, be, and is that was a result of having to take classes for like sort of the astronomy or astrophysics stuff you were taking? Or does geology itself require a lot of... Geology of is, it depends on what you do. Geology, I love as a field because you can be a chemist or a physicist or a mathematician or none of those things and still have a place in geology. So our particular major didn't require a lot of math. I just liked math. So I just took it. <laughs> yeah, because because I, I was wondering when you said you did the fluid mechanics, which I know is heavily mathematical, right. with a bunch of partial differential equations and stuff. You're not just going to show up and take that, having not done a fair amount of math as an undergraduate, yeah. right? Otherwise, you'd have to spend a lot of time taking undergraduate classes just to get you up to where you could even right. attempt that stuff, right? So you you would have that enough background to, to yeah. Jump into that? So uh, I yeah, I always took math kind of. Um, the advice I had gotten was just take math until you are just incapable of taking math. And for me, it oh, was... Oh, you mean just because you don't know how you can fit your schedule or it's just gotten so hard yeah, and it's so like, yeah. distracted? And um, that's what my advisor in grad school wanted us to take math until we got at least a C or a D and then we could stop. But for me, I just loved math. I really like drawing symbols, you know? So I like yeah. to have like a notebook full of crazy symbols. I like the symbols too. Yeah. I've always looked at it. It used to be like wizard scroll. Exactly. Scroll. Like, like you'd, you'd go and you'd see, you'd open these math books, you see all these crazy symbols. You're like, I, I always be like, I gotta know what that means. It's like, I don't know, but it looks just looks so exciting. I don't know. Did yeah. you have a similar? Oh yeah, absolutely. I used to play these computer games like Mist or Riven. Yep. And they'd mm -hmm. have all these notebooks that you'd have to keep uh -huh. with like vectors showing the way things moved. And uh, I just really like doing all that stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, I, my wife and I started a, an accelerated math program in the school district. So we identify kids in the, as early in the fifth grade and they test they test in and we get about 60 kids, well, 50. We're, 50, we'll hope we get about 50 next year um, who go into sixth grade, start algebra. They finish calculus in eighth grade. 
And then they wow. all do undergraduate, four years of undergraduate math. So our ninth graders were the original group that I started with. So I taught, I, this whole thing rolled out of me just doing mm-hmm. a pull out math class. Oh, cool. Which then grew and grew. But our ninth graders are now doing linear algebra and vector analysis. Wow. And That's so next great. year it's differential equations, abstract algebra, blah, blah, blah. So we have like, Two of our three instructors have uh, PhDs in math. Or, oh, that's you know, cool. So it's like, um, you know, that's the goal is to be graduating like, you know, something like 50 kids a year with the sort of equivalent of an undergraduate math degree. That's great. You know, so that's, so I, yeah. I was a math major. Um, I, 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 so anyway, we, we can just keep going with this. But I, um, you know, being a math major myself, obviously, I, uh, um, I understand yeah. the, lo- the love of it. And, uh, <laughs> but also... The thing about math is that if you don't learn it in school, it's extremely hard to mm-hmm. learn your own. It's not always things like, oh, I'm just going to teach myself Python, or I'm going to go, <laughs> you know, move to another country and learn a little some French. Like, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, maybe you'd have someone with 180 IQ who's just incredibly disciplined, and they're just going to go pick up some, you know, advanced math text and really push through it on their own. But I don't know how, how much that or how that really happens. Yeah, a lot of the texts are just like, oh, and then we go from step A to step G. That's with right. just a little bit of rearranging, and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a miracle happens, yeah. right? <laughs> but yeah, geology has ends up having a lot of math in it, and this is what I realized as an undergraduate, because I was taking linear algebra at the same time as I was taking structure, and mm-hmm. so structure is bends and folds and mountain building and all of this kind of stuff, but it's all this kind of tensor mathematics, and so right. I came to my professor and I said, you know, it seems like it would be way more efficient to do the problems that we're doing in class using linear algebra rather than how we're doing it and he's like aha yes <laughs> that's the graduate part <laughs> yeah the uh the the uh professor who's teaching linear algebra to our our um our ninth graders in their math academy program he's he's a huge fan of linear algebra you mm-hmm. know which is it's it's become a thing lately i think was it gilbert strange i think who's a professor at yale a uh, mathematician at yale and he talks a little about how linear algebra is m- tends to be a much more useful thing to know than calculus even. And we spend mm-hmm. all this time studying calculus. You know, a lot of kids learn it in high school and then they go on to do it out of the year or two of it in college. And it's like, unless you're sort of like an electrical or engineer or certain types of engineer or physics physicist, it's like not always that useful. Whereas linear algebra, it's like everywhere. Yeah, right? and it, the funny part is, at least the way I learned it, linear algebra, it seemed totally useless when I right. first took it. Where it's just like, you it's know, like calculate prove the term. that zero <laughs> equals zero or something. And then, pr- and I was like, okay, whatever. Right. And then it took a really long time to be like, oh, I see. Because we were always doing these coordinate transformations and my teacher would draw a pineapple and he's like, here's a pineapple. And then now we have this like slanted pineapple. And then that's what this is all about. And I was like, okay, they, that sounds useless. And then, <laughs> right, unless, um, unless you're going to be like a graphics program yeah. or something. I don't really. And then I go what... back to uh, geology and we do coordinate transformations all the time because right. we're going from the mercator to a globe to a, mm, everything else. And right. I realize, oh, this is the same thing. But instead right. of a pineapple, it's something I actually care about. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So I, I think, I can't remember, uh, oh, Gianna. Carlotta or something. He was this professor at MIT, and he used to say this thing that whenever he would talk to former students of his, they would always say, I wish I had taken more math when I was at MIT. Nobody mm-hmm. says, I wish I had taken less. <laughs> I wish I had taken more. I mean, people take less because it's hard. Right. It's usually about among the hardest things that you'll ever try and do, especially if you're not extremely gifted because it gets, you know, every year it's harder, and the people who are still in it are that much more 
gifted and that much more dedicated to it right so it's just like mm-hmm. this it's just like this pyramid thing like you said people eventually you start getting season d's and you're like all right i'm out yeah <laughs> it's just i can't afford to get a d on my transcript uh, this is bad um i have no idea what's happening but yeah they always say because you come to things later and if you have the tool set and the preparation you're like oh I can solve all this stuff. There's any way to do it. If you don't, right. you're just like, I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. It's out of your reach all of a sudden. It's gone. Yeah. yeah. And then you, now you have a ceiling. Right. What you can do. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's unfortunate. So, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, becoming a, uh, a scientist yourself. So, um, you know, you, you got a degree in geology um minor in math you know like now he, he you you had early on talked thought about becoming a an uh, astronaut mm-hmm. was that an ongoing thing or did that just sort of migrate to say well i you know i want to just do something in space science yeah i kind of got to i wanted to do the whole like i wanted to go to the air force academy and become a pilot and then become an astronaut and then i met this fellow that had followed that same path and he was saying he spent so much time away from his family first of all being a test pilot it's very dangerous and all of these things and then eventually became a commercial pilot and was able to spend more time with his family and i was thinking when I finally decided not to go to the Air Force Academy, then I made a, a life decision. I said, okay, well, I'm going to study something that's very interesting to me. And I'm not, I'm going to put aside the idea that then I could be an astronaut with that thing. I'm just going to do what I love instead of, instead of deferring what I love for this, yeah. you know, forever, maybe, mm-hmm. um, to try and get this particular goal. So then when I went into studying space science and, um, I just loved it. And my professor, my advisor in graduate school, he was one of the guys on Apollo who was training the Apollo astronauts mm-hmm. to understand geology. Mm-hmm. That's what he was doing when he first got out of grad school. And so that seemed really exciting. Yeah. And I realized you could do a lot for exploration of the solar system um, and not the, the astronaut is the most visible part of that, but the rest of the tree is also very rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing you talk, You just mentioned about doing what you're interested in now versus postponing it for some almost indefinite length of time. And I think people fall into that trap all the time. Yeah. They say, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to write that book or I'm not going to, you know, I don't know, get this degree. I don't know, whatever it is. You know, I want to be a musician, but I'm going to wait until I make a lot of money and then I'll go and I'll be a musician or I'll wait to write, which is like, but then it never happens. Right. That's usually just a procrastinate. I mean, it's either a mistake or it's just sort of a, a way of procrastinating. Um, but I've, in my experience, it's like it's usually best to just, just go to the heart of it. Do the thing that you love to do um, now, even if like maybe you don't if you've had more money or had more of this or more of that, you feel like oh, I could I, I could uh do it in a way that was easy or whatever, but just that's usually a mistake, right? Just yeah, do it. I found this quote. It was, um, if you really want something, you'll find a way. And if you don't, you'll find an excuse. <laughs> so it's kind of <laughs> right. like where there's a will, there's a way. But the right. thing that was important to me is like, okay, if you hear yourself making lots of excuses, it could be because you just don't really want that. And that's so right. stop trying to tell yourself, this is what I really want, but I can't do it for A, B, and C. It's either do it or say, you know, I don't want that as much as what I want this it's other okay. thing. But a lot of people have a hard time of letting go, admitting to themselves that they don't want something because they've built a self-identity right. about, around this is who I am. I may maybe say, I want to be an actor, right? That's their thing, but they're not acting. 
Yeah. <laughs> They're doing other things. Like, well, I'm going to act later. It's like, but just admit it. But people have this, like you said, they have this sort of dream and, and give, and, and something, fewer things are sadder than saying goodbye to dreams. Mm-hmm. Especially dreams of who you are going to be. It's like, just, you know, it's okay. We all change. Yeah. Right? And that's a tough thing about our business, actually. Sometimes I talk to actors and other people in the movie business, and it's really similar because you could put all of your hopes and dreams into a particular mission. And either, like my mission, it could not be selected. Mm-hmm. I could work for a year or two on this mm-hmm. mission, not be selected. I could be selected, and then it crashes. <laughs> Right, That's which, happened which several happens, times. Right? Yeah, right, so yeah. you get all, you just give your life for five years to a thing and then it crashes. And so I really think you have to love the process. You can't be in it for the particular ultimate goal. Particular result or particular. Right. You have to say like, oh, I'm on this adventure. It's a journey and I'm building things. And I love the fact that I get a paycheck to sit in this room and think about this really hard problem about the moon or something like that. And then, okay, if it works, it's that's great. If it doesn't work, I still got all of those things that I was looking for along the way. It also, um, it, it, it also, um, let me see, I should say this. Um, it's a good thing that you're involved in multiple projects. Yes. Because if, if you were all involved in one project it crash, and it crashed after five years or seven years, it, it would lead to probably depression. Yeah. You'd just be like, what is my life about? Everything that was meant, all the sacrifices I've made have ended up for nothing. And it might even be partially my fault or something, yeah, right? I because mean, I argued could for be some- totally your fault, you know? And that's what I tell people in grad school too. You have your thesis project. Gotta have a side project too, because <laughs> the thesis project doesn't always work out. And so out you got. In my case, I had two projects. I had a project about volcanoes in the Martian atmosphere, and then I had a project, a uh, side project on Mercury, and then I had another side project. On, you know, but then as your fortunes wax and wane, you're never without anything. And the, the solar system is a lot like this because. Uh, one presidential administration might be all about Mars and the money's rolling in for Mars. And then next presidential administration don't care about Mars. Everything's going to the moon. And so if you put all your eggs in the Mars basket, sometimes you can be left out. Yeah, yeah. So I, Justin and I talk about, I mean, we're, we're sort of, we have to fight against having too many side projects, yeah. you know? I mean, we're <laughs> a little too, um, but, you know, because there's that, there's that, you know, fine balance, right? Like, uh, you know, the delicate balance. So it's like if you have too much stuff you're trying to do, you get nothing done. Right. You're just scatterbrained. If all you do, if you're you sort of monomaniacal, just focused on one thing and that's it, right? You say there's no diversification. You know, if things if, you, if things go badly or it gets defunded or whatever, shelved and you're just kind of screwed. Yeah. So having that sort of, do you have like sort of a... um a heuristic that's like, well, I have my sort of 60% project. Like that to me, then I have like a 30%, which is my real side project. And then I have this 10% kind of side, side project, which is still really cool. Yeah, Is that exactly. kind of what yeah. you do? Or? And it's kind of funny because you have different um, levels of that. So within my job, I obviously have all these different jobs and each one mm. has a different boss and, you know, it can get really confusing. Right. So if you get up to something like 10 projects, you got to pair that back. And then you have your main projects and sometimes if you can get on a flight project, that's a nice mm. paycheck. Like it, mm. it can be really uh, last and stable. Um, but then you start, okay, outside of work. Now do I have side projects outside of work? Right. You know, like, am I going to go and talk to, you know, people or whatever? And you start 
with those projects, I sort of decided not to do that. I was like, I'm going to give my 100% to JPL. Sort of moonlighting. Yeah. Sort of moonlighting, maybe right. teaching a course at the local university right, exactly. or whatever. Right? So in my case, I was like, I'm going to put my 100% effort into JPL as an institution because I think mm. it's a really good one. And then within JPL, I'll have diversity of planets and diversity of funding sources or whatever. Right, right. Have you ever had the uh, heartbreakers, something that you really spent a lot of time in that just... I've had, well, this moon project has definitely gone through ups and downs. Like for a number of years ago, it was all about um, icy moons. Everyone was so excited about icy moons. So we kept saying, oh, we have this great rover, go to the moon. They'd say, unless your rover goes down a fissure and Enceladus, the icy moon of Saturn, I don't want to talk to you guys. (laughs) Really? Because it's what it was with the ideas that there might be life and some water underneath us. So that was the big thing, right? And it was just Cassini had just discovered that um, this icy moon of Enceladus had water venting out of its southern hemisphere. And so the spacecraft actually flew through one of those plumes and took um, right, I remember a that. sample. I remember yeah. that. So then yeah. everyone was like, oh my goodness. We always thought that the icy moons were a nice place to have life because you have um, heat and energy and water and a lot of them have oceans under the icy shells. Right. But it seemed totally impossible that we would ever access that life and know that it was there. And when we realized that there could be water coming from that ocean and venting out into space where we could touch it, then everyone was quite excited. And they're still really excited. Um, but the moon has uh, had a resurgence in fortune recently. <laughs> okay. Why is that? Uh, it was the change of the administration. So okay. the Trump administration, it's really not Trump himself, but um, Mike Pence is really invested in NASA and space. And and then uh, Jim Bridenstine is our new NASA administrator. And he's really, they're all very gung-ho about the moon. It was kind of like George Bush, that administration, George W. was really moon-focused. And then when Obama came in, he kind of shifted everything towards the Earth. And then... Now it's kind of like, okay, let's go pick up that moon thread and keep going to the moon. <laughs> right. What about Mars? How does Mars fit in all that? Mars is, it's it's really funny because they have a graphic where they show, it's always like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to understand the earth. We're going to go to the moon and then we're going to build all the skills we need in order to eventually go to Mars. That's always the ultimate destination because right. it's the one real place you could live. You know? right. So the size of Mars in those graphics that they show changes depending on how important it is <laughs> okay. year to year. So it'd be like a big moon and a tiny Mars in the background or like a, like a moon that's like leading towards Mars. It's really right. big, you know? So Mars right now is, um, has a lot of great missions going towards it. Mars 2020. Mm-hmm. And then we have this sample return arc where we're sending Mars 2020 to collect samples. Then we're going to send a spacecraft to get those samples and bring them back is the idea eventually. And so Mars is still important, but like all the human program is focused on the moon right now. So is, is there any chance of like Mars 2020 being a misnomer and it's Mar and it turns out to be 2022 or something. You know, <laughs> well, it's like it's like Windows Server 2010 comes out in like 2016. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're always joking because at some point the spacecraft gets a new name. Like Curiosity was the Mars Science Laboratory, and then when it was about to launch, it became Curiosity, and then a naming contest and stuff. And so we're always like, oh, we have a naming contest for Mars 2020 and change its name to Mars 2022. Ha ha ha! You right, know, like right, right. big joke. But they're they're trying to keep Keep it on schedule right now. It's supposed to launch towards the end of 2020. So you're already kind of close to the thing. Mm-hmm. But if if it does slip, it would have to slip two years because that's the next time Mars comes right, close yeah, the to 80, us. Is it, 18, is it really two years or is it 18 months? What is the, you know, how long it takes before they get in close? 
Yeah, it every Mars has two years for every one year. Really, on the like Earth. almost a full twenty-four months. Yeah, interesting. That's why if you go there, you like even if you can't come back, it's going to be at least. Yeah, so you of, you can go to Mars. It takes about six months if you went straight there. Right, and then either you come around, turn right back, and go back. It's right. pretty energetically uh, costly, or you wait a year and then you come back. That's six back. months. Yeah, right. So, okay, I have to plan that in my, put that in my planner. Yeah. So we have a lot of things where we'll sit and say, okay, suppose you had a year on Mars and what would you do with all of your days and where would you go? And we have these meetings saying, which specific spot on Mars would we want to land in that has resources and is interesting scientifically? And we right, right. argue about that. <laughs> it's a fun part of my job. Yeah. So Justin tell, tells me or told me that you were the youngest PI on a, or you would be the youngest PI on this proposed Moondiver project. Is is that right? If, assuming that's gets probably picked. true. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, um, this project, most of the time, the principal investigator is something that you do kind of at the pinnacle of your career after. Right, which you're what, in your mid, late 50s kind of thing? Right, yeah, maybe even in your 70s. We have, wow, because oh, right. these are scientists, so they right. stick around for they a stick around. You look quite a bit younger yeah, that. I'm I not was, in my 70s. <laughs> you're, you're in your 30s? <laughs> yes. Okay, so, all right, so you're, yeah, so you're quite young. So, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit. So it's called the Moon Diver Project. What is yes. it? How did, how did you come up with the idea? What is, you know? Um, so Moon Diver, the way it started is that in 2010, the Japanese spacecraft, um, Celine found some deep like Celine Dion or yeah it's a Celine like the moon <laughs> like Selenographic okay okay yeah okay. and uh it's got a Japanese name Kaguya and then okay. the English name is Celine okay I was about to say Celine doesn't sound too Japanese no okay, <laughs> so um this spacecraft found these pits in the moon um there's about 10 to 12 of them okay. and they're this season these pits leading into the dark holes that lead into these giant caverns and so um Everyone was pretty excited about them because they thought, okay, first of all, what's down there? It's very mm -hmm. mysterious. Mm -hmm. And then the secondly, if there's some space down there, um, you could build a base mm. in that space. Because it'd be protected from the uh, yes. radiation. It'd be protected from radiation, from micrometeorites, from temperature swings. Like the if down in that cave, this particular one that we're targeting is about minus 35C all the time, night and day. And so um, it's, and then you could just kind of plug the, the hole and then you'd have a space that you could fill up with air and all of this kind of stuff nice. so it's really interesting people are interested in that f for that reason and then Wait, that's but they're also talking about this kind of thing for mars too ultimately because of the radiation and stuff yes. that they look for some kind of like lava tunnel or right subterranean, know, subterranean cavern i actually yeah. proposed um to build into the volcanic ash sheets so there's all these mm. uh civilization in um, there's all these underground cities that were built in Cappadocia in Turkey mm. during uh, like 1 AD kind of. Okay. The Christians were hiding from people at different ages. And so they made this uh, cities that could house seven or 8,000 people into this volcanic ash sheet. So I found, wow. I study volcanoes. I study, I found some volcanic ash sheets on Mars. And I said, this is the spot where I want you to build your underground cavern civilization. You probably name it after them too. What was the, you know, the name of the civilization? Uh, well, so it was all Christian. It was, um, you know, in the Cappadocia region. Cappadocia. Yeah. So they have different names for the cities, um, Gorome and. So, so do we know, so on the moon, is there a spot right now? Or are you saying there could be yes, a spot like that? There are. So that's the ones that the Japanese spacecraft found, found all these spots. And so um, the one, what 
where I came from, everyone was like, oh, this is so cool. Look at all these things. It'd be interesting to send a mission there. But then what would you do scientifically? It's just a big cavern. It could be a lava tube, which would be interesting, but where's the meat of the science that you would learn from it? And so I saw an oblique picture of this hole, and you could see that in the wall of the pit, there was a huge number of layers, maybe 70 meters of layers, like the Grand Canyon, yeah, like right, exposed right. history of the you moon see in over front of millions you. of years. And right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, potentially even billions of years. And so um, we realized that the moon is a really special case in the solar system where you see the moon, it, the white part of the moon, that's its original crust from when mm -hmm. it first formed. Mm -hmm. And then the black part of the moon is volcanism that happened after that. Mm -hmm. And on most planets, that volcanism just continues and continues until it covers the whole planet. On Earth, this happened, Venus, on Mars, all of them are totally resurfaced. And the moon was the one place where we could go in the solar system where that original crust was still there. Mm -hmm. And then the new crust had just formed. So we could yeah. learn a lot about how this new crust, what it had to come through and what the interior of the moon was like from looking at this new crust about which we knew so much because we already could see the old crust coming through. So I said, I don't, let's not even think about that tube. I want to study that wall. It's an yeah. incredible. Uh, Being a geologist. Yes. <laughs> that's like, that's like the, that's what you want to see, right? Because there's so much information. Right, because there, we'd right? never ever seen rock in place on the moon before all the we're just, looking at that, we're just looking down at the top right we're looking at the, the top stuff. and it's all smashed up by meteorites and so you get this fine dust and regolith and random pieces of rocks and mm. you don't know what, where they are in context to one another right. so the the analogy i like to use is that the geology is like reading a series of books and the lunar geology you have a series of books and then it covered with a bunch of shredded books <laughs> Right. Okay. So if you take all the little shredded pieces and you take them back to the lab and you study them for 50 years, you can learn a lot about the the history of the moon. But with a lot simpler instruments, if you just look at the books that are already in place and not shredded in a million pieces, then you can learn a great deal more. And so that's when I met this fellow, um, Issa Nesnes, who is a guy at JPL who had a repelling robot and he was developing mm. it to go to extreme locations. You're like, you're just the guy I need yeah. to talk to. And I said, okay. you know what I would do with your robot? I I would send it to this pit on the moon. And he's I would like, look, totally. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, I would, be, yeah, I would totally do that. And we both drank a bunch of Mountain Dew. And right. then we said, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it, yeah. <laughs> so, so we started submitting smaller proposals to develop the robot and to develop the ideas. And then over time, we kind of, you know, kept honing this idea probably over the span of two or three years. Right, so it's been... Since the beginning, since your since first conversation was 2015-2016. You're right, 2015. Have you learned a lot of robotics in the interim, or have you just totally yeah. leave that to him? Yeah, I have learned a lot, because what's interesting, what's great about JPL is that I can really embed myself in the team of robotics engineers, mm -hmm. and then so I go to all their meetings, and then and I'm always there saying... Oh, they're like, oh, how about we have an instrument placement device like this? And then I'm like, oh, no, it has to be like this. <laughs> yes, that won't work for <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's the other problem is when, when people, technologists build, build solutions in the absence of domain experts. Right. Because they build something that's technically cool and impressive, but not practical. Right. right? And then and the person in the domain is like, well, what are you doing? 
Yeah. Why, why, I don't I, This is not going to work. And they're like, oh, but can't you use it? No. Yeah, I can't. they have these amazing robots and they have incredible mobility strategies. And then I come in and I say, well, where am I going to put my instrument? My instrument's the size of a Coke can or it's the size of a bread box and it doesn't fit in your little. <laughs> and I don't see a fanny pack anyway. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> and they're kind of like, well, well, that's the boring part. Like, my robot is an origami masterpiece. And, you know, then I'm like, well, I can't fit a camera on it. So then what, where are we now? And so what was nice about about this robot is that um, Issa had, had sought out very early on advice from geologists um, at JPL. My supervisor, um, Bob Anderson, he was involved in working with, and he was in, he was interested in Mars, but he was still like, oh yeah, I have lots of instruments, big payload. I want it to be on the slope. I want it to do this. It has to be stable platform for all of my stuff. And so by the time I found it, it had gotten enough attention and investment that it was really ready to go. Yeah. And it, the only step, it hadn't been infused in a mission yet. So So you were, you gave up the... Yeah, I said, yes. Right. Now I know what to, I'm going to take this yeah. robot and I'm going to infuse it into a mission. I'm going to bring it, it funding mission. and right. meaning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, inject meaning into your yeah, project. Yeah, and that's a challenge, you know, we have a lot of tech people at JPL and very interesting technologies and right. there are way more of them than there are of the scientists. Mm -hmm. And so the scientists role, I think, is to go out there and say, okay, you eventually I'm going to be the one kind of marketing what you're selling to right. the customer base. And right. so you got to help me out and make something that it's marketable. And when I found this rover, I, of course, went to every conference I knew about it. And I was like, did you guys know about this amazing rover? And all right. my friends are like, oh my gosh, that's what we've always wanted. Right. And so it was easy. That's really cool. So can you describe the robot a little bit? Yeah, so the robot's called Axel. And it's um, it's A X E L. There's some videos of it online, okay. but it's got two wheels and a big axle between okay. the two wheels. So it's two wheeled rover. It has a tail that it uh -huh. drags, and then it has a tether that's attached to. So what happens is um, we land on the moon, then we rappel off of our lander, and then we are we are attached to our lander by this tether, which supplies our power and our communications. So we can go wherever we want. Our lander is just stationary there looking at the earth. And so we rappel down into the cave. Um, so the robot has two these two big wheels, and then in the wheel wells are where all the instruments are, and they kind of rotate like a lazy Susan of instruments, and they deploy out on the surface. And that's great for us, too, because it can flip over, and it can still drive, mm. and all the instruments are protected inside this bay until you need them. So if you rain dust on yourself or you crash mm. into a rock or something like that, all the instruments are fine. So that's the, it's a really simple design. It um, only and that, think, this thing can repel down the side of a... Yeah, and the actual cliff? rope is really slender. It's probably like a uh, maybe five millimeters thick, this actual tether that it hangs off the robot of. weigh, like 30 pounds or something? Yeah, like? let's see. I guess the rover weighs, I always, it's always in kilograms, so it would be about 50 kilograms, so. Oh, wow. So that's Times 2.2. 2. 2. 2. 120 <laughs> yeah. pounds. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Um, how does this how does this thing power itself? Because it's not is it's, enough sunlight. It's solar powered. Is enough solar power. So it's solar powered from the rover or from the lander. So the lander oh. has a solar panel that's tracking the sun, and then it sends the power down the cable to the robot that mm. has the battery, and I it see. trickle charges the battery. And but we only last for one lunar day. So imagine it, lunar dawn. And how long is lunar day? It's about fourteen Earth days. So if you think about a month. Uh, if you look at the moon, any one given spot on the moon is going to be in sunlight for two weeks and then darkness for two weeks. Well, and that's so, 
I'd say that's a good work day, right? I yeah. Mean, I mean, that's, you get so you a lot get twenty four right? seven time. I mean, assuming it for two weeks. Assuming it moves more than a snail's pace. I mean, how yeah. fast does this thing move? It moves pretty slowly, um, but it's still we have plenty of time actually. And uh, if I actually calculated all the time that the Apollo astronauts spent on the moon, uh-huh. and it's all total, if you add all of them together, all the missions, you get about 300 hours, and our mission is about 308 hours. Nice. See, you know, speaking of the speed, I mean, everybody who worries about the robot, you know, takeover and revolution, it's like, have you seen how slow they are? I mean, it's like you just step out of the way. I mean, there's, <laughs> you're so damn slow. You should check yeah. out the videos by the Boston Dynamics. I know. I watch yeah. this all the time. They're Those getting are better little, and better. They're getting a little creepy. They're getting a little scary. Yeah, they're getting a, the, that one that's like uh, the six or seven feet tall. and Yeah, they have a cheetah one that runs like a cheetah. That's pretty cool. Jumps over hurdles. Yeah. So maybe another 10, 15 years, those guys will come up with something. Yeah, for in our case, we try and ma- uh, minimize power consumption. Right. And so we'd go very slowly. Our motors take draw small amounts of power, and that's just because we'll have a limited amount of power coming through our solar panel. What about nuclear-powered nuclear robots? We have some, so Curiosity is a nuclear-powered robot, mm. and Mars 2020 is as well. Um, but whenever you have nuclear power on your robots, you have to have this very costly launch approval process where they go tell the Russians, like, hey, guys, don't worry, you know, we're, we're launching something nuclear, but it's fine. And it's so, yeah, just even all that paperwork costs millions of dollars to get approved. I, I want to see, you know, there's so one of these uh, movies, I think it was, they go to Mars. I know Val Kilmer was in it, and they had this one robot. And you know what I'm talking no, about? No, I don't think I and saw it. Like, it was super agile and could like, it's called Amy. Yeah, right. It was some acronym or something. And it would like, it could twist itself, turn around. It was so badass. I'm like, I want, why don't we get one of those? You know, like you speak of marketing, it's like make a robot that looks awesome. That people really like, that's, and you see that thing just moving all over the place, doing kind of stuff. You'd be like, totally. Like, I'd, yeah, I'd, I keep telling the robotics engineers I know, like, what I want you to make is something that'll carry all my stuff. <laughs> I go out in the field all the time, carry all this heavy equipment. I just want something like that dog from Boston Dynamics. Yeah. Carries all my stuff. On a mechanical donkey. <laughs> They're like, basically. that doesn't sound that interesting. No, no, it's great. Just <laughs> trust me. It'll be hard. I, I promise. Yeah. But we have this one robot called Robo Simeon, which is very interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like a, it can walk, I think it can walk on two feet or it can walk on four feet and it can open doorknobs and right. it can drive a car. And they had this big competition, a DARPA competition where you had to drive a car up to a spot, then you had to go in open a door and then you had to shut off a big valve. So kind of right. like a Fukushima type thing. You could go in and and solve whatever problem so needed to be had solved. to show a certain amount of versatility and yeah. adaptability, right? Yeah. And I mean, the movie, the videos of it are hilarious, all the kind of ways the robots fail. Um, but they're getting better and better at it. And now we have a bunch of robots that are in this competition to navigate in subterranean passages. Right. So they start out with like mine tunnels because those are regularly shaped. And then now they're asking me like, hey, do you know of any weird caves? And I'm like, oh, I got got a lot lot of weird caves for you. You're like, which planet? Which planet do you want them on? So I send them out in the desert like, yeah, try your robot on this cave. Right. You know. This is a level three. Yeah. Yeah. It's always really fun to kind of throw the technology against the true environment, you know? Because right, they're like, right, oh, right. wouldn't it be nice if the surface was flat? And what they always say is you can't levy requirements on the world. Right, right, right. <laughs> they, they want to, yeah, exactly. That's why the solution, you, when you leave it to their own devices, they come up with solutions that are not 
not that practical. So, um, Moondiver project. So that's that's it. What phase? Are you at the? You proposed it. Are you waiting to hear back? Are you going through uh, a period of we review? are currently writing the proposal right now. So there's a lot of internal reviews that go on that we've been through already. Mm -hmm. um, but the final proposal will be due at the end of May, mm -hmm. and then we won't hear back until next December. Next December, so a year. Yeah. Okay. So it's a and long then what year. happens is there's probably. There's several different NASA centers that are involved, like JPL will propose some and Goddard Space Flight Center will mm -hmm. propose some. And then APL, which is kind of similar like JPL where it's run out of Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, and so they'll propose some and it might be about 20 and then they'll bring it down to maybe three or four. And then those three or four will get some seed money for a year. Mm. And then the final selection would be made right around 2021. And then it's like, go! Got it. Make admission as fast as you can. And then it would launch in about 2025. Okay. So, so your project would launch, if, if this whole thing would ha happen, yeah. it wouldn't have to do it. So it's okay. So it's almost like retirement planning. I mean, this is Yeah. So well, it's funny because, so my project would, you know, if I it went all the way through it, launch in 2025, last for two weeks, right? right? There's some other projects that going out to distant solar system bodies in the outer solar system or something, they might not even arrive until 2038. Right. So they have to have, talking about young or old PIs, they, they have a PI that's in their 70s, okay, but then they have to have a succession plan. <laughs> right, right, yeah. People, yeah, people yeah. get sick, people die. Yeah, so it's it's tough in the space business because your direction usually is usually changing on a four-year political cycle, mm -hmm. but in order to get something done that takes decades. Right. And right. you have to stick with one thing for, you know, at least five years, maybe 10 years to get what you want to get done. Now, you said that there'd be like 20 proposals. Is that just 20 proposals per, per certain category? Or, I mean, is that all proposals across all types of missions or what? Yeah, The so this is a particular type of mission called the Discovery Mission, and the it's just the cost cap, which is $500 million, is the same. And then, but you can propose anywhere in the solar system. So I'd say, with that $500 million, I want to go to Venus and I'll fly this radar m machine. That if it, but it's part of the discovery category? Yeah. So there's three different categories of um, missions that are competed. Well, I guess... Usually you have flagship missions, which are directed. So NASA will say, JPL, I want you to build this. That's a flagship. And it yeah. could be up to, you know, $2, two billion, sometimes more. Who, who's, who says uh, that like the, comes from the White it comes House comes from uh, NASA headquarters. NASA, does they decide, like, we want to do this because it's awesome. And yeah, usually gonna... it comes from the community where the community of scientists will get together and we'll make something called a decadal survey and we'll say, okay, for the next decade, here's the top priorities that we are interested in as a community. And then uh, NASA headquarters is, says, okay, let's see how feasible all of those are and how much we think they're going to cost. And they do a bunch of studies. Mm -hmm. And so for this, uh, Mars 2020 is a flagship mission mm -hmm. for this decade. And then we have another flagship mission that's going to Europa called Europa Clipper. Yeah. So that's another one. And then the next category down is, um, these are all for planetary. There's also totally different missions for Earth and astrophysics, heliophysics. So then for planetary, there's one called New Frontiers. And I think it's about 750 million. And so New Horizons, the mission that went to Pluto, that was an example of a mission in that category. And then the lowest category is this um, half billion dollar 
um, mission category discovery. Peanut category. Just yeah. And they bill. have that one. That one comes half along. Half a bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a cool half a billion. And um, so the New Frontiers category, they have a certain number of missions, and then people have to propose to those things. So uh-huh. it's like, okay, we want something that goes and samples a comet. That's one thing that you can do. Or you can have one that, you know, uh, lands on Venus, or you can have one that does that. So you have to fit in one of those categories that's already predetermined. Mm-hmm. Discovery is uh, interesting because it can be whatever you want. You just everyone comes up with their mm-hmm. own thing. And so you're competing against a, a whole variety of very interesting missions to every solar system body you can imagine. Right, right. Um, so, okay, a few different lines of discussion. I'll ask you one thing that's just totally just occurred to me. Um, so do you have people at NASA who are like, you know, like the crazy creative type who always come up with some really interesting thing. So, you know how like sometimes we go historical and we have these, these mathematicians or physicists and everybody talks about like Feynman or whatever and they're just, everybody's just like, well, everyone here is really smart. Everybody knows their stuff, but there's this person over here who's just like, okay, just go ask him. Like, yeah. go figure it out. Do other people like that walking around? There's oh, a few absolutely. people that we're going to be reading about or you might potentially read about in 20, 30 years. Like, who? Yeah, yeah there's, there's a different sorts of people. There's some people that are just absolutely filled with ideas. Right. And, and you could say that they're ADHD or something. Right. <laughs> I right. think they are. It's like they're not medicated. Right. They're just off the wall, like ideas all the time. You could do this. You could do that. Just, yeah, yeah. This? Let's do uh, this, you know. And so those people are great, especially in the technology realm and also at the in formulation. Right. And so we have these formulation days we call Team A. And everyone comes there and they say, okay, suppose you wanted to do this uh, sample return from the surface of Mercury. How would you even begin? And this person's like, ah, I have all these ideas. <laughs> uh, you know. You're like trying to record right yeah, to now. Yeah, like, like, ah. <laughs> and then there's the kind of person who's like, human encyclopedia right and they just remember well trajectory of this blah blah yeah. like I, that was really helpful yeah. yeah this person who even if they didn't live it or they're just a big nerd and they read about it and right. they just they're like a human encyclopedia no everything that's what i realized when i got to nasa you know when you're in the first grade you do a, a report and you just pl- facts about planets i realized if i could be a human encyclopedia for facts about planets i right. could have a good place here you know right so i was just right. like i already know a lot of facts about planets i'm going to be somebody that if you ask like what is you know Talk jupiter's Lord, atmosphere made out of i could just be like this is what it's made and it's important because you're always in these meetings and somebody will say you know I think that we should do this or something. And you have to say, oh, wait a minute. The atmosphere of Mars has the pressure of this and this wouldn't work for this reason. And so you have to know it. You can't always be looking up on Wikipedia. It's just too slow. That's what people talk about. Well, you don't have to know anything because everything's on the web. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, stuff yeah. has to be in your brain so you can synthesize it, recall it quickly. Stuff that's in a book somewhere. Well, I can just go to the library and learn it. It's like that's not. Yeah, you have enough. to know. You have to know it contextually, and you have to know it at the right minute. That's that's and, the issue. And to be able to impress the right people, right? Yeah. Everybody's like, okay, like this is the tenth time that she's pointed out some stuff that we would have wasted a month right. just going down a rabbit hole, and she could just said right off the bat, "You can't do it," or "You want to look here." Yeah, or like, or in some cases. You know, we'll say, oh, we're going to do it this way. And no one's ever done it that way before. And then one of our other reviewers will say, oh, this mission did it in this year. And then we're like, thank you. Because right. <laughs> then sud- sud- suddenly something that would have killed us is like, oh, ever- oh, that those people did. It. Okay, then we're satisfied. And so, yeah, we have the human encyclopedias. You have these people full of crazy ideas. And then you kind of have... The Doc Browns. Those are the Doc Browns, right? Yeah, crazy yeah. ideas. You have your Doc Browns. And then and the people know everything. What's the guy from Cheers? He's like, you do everything, the, the, the post... 
the postal worker. Do you remember that guy's name? Mm-mm. He's like, yeah, well, you know, the little one. <laughs> there are people listening going, I know, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, he does the voice for a lot of the, uh, the sort of Pixar movies. Nice. Um, so, and then, and then there's the, what, the problem solvers? The person's like, yeah, there's this crazy hard equation. You have some people, for example, that are really good at math and mm-hmm. who can just we call know, pull nerds, up lots but... of... Edu- yeah, well, I'm talking about ner- all of these people are nerds. There's a nerds yeah. among nerds, right? Yeah, every <laughs> single one of these people, huge nerd. And so, uh, <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. So, yeah, there's kind of people who you'll say, oh, okay, how about this? And they'll just go up to the board and write it all down. And so, that's what's really exciting about working at JPL, I think, because in every room you're in, then there's all these smart people and they're all smart in different ways. And um, the way I feel like, okay, I'm a scientist and I know lots of planet facts. I don't have to know all the other stuff, but I'm very interested and I'm very curious about it. And so I just love to hear these people kind of go on about, um, you know, how they did radar around Venus in the late 80s. Or something, right, you know? right, right. It's fascinating. Well, I, I feel like part of problem solving or getting things done, you know, creating a successful project is knowing enough for the right people. It's like, he's like, I don't know that, but I know the person who does. Yeah. And I'll just Skype him or send an email and I right. know to that. Be, if you're kind of one phone call away from everyone you need, then you're in a good spot. That's, yeah, I, I feel like my life has benefited from that. You know, I just seem to know enough of the right people and stuff that would be really hard for other people to pull off. It's not, and, you know, I clearly don't know all that stuff myself. I know of it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that somebody does know it. I know it's possible. I just yeah. don't know. You know, it's like, you know, there was there were times when I would try and do everything myself just because like I didn't want to lose the the opportunity to learn it. Right. Right? You get kind of greedy with the learning. Yeah. But then you realize like I'm just spending three days screwing all the configuration for the software and it's like, oh, this is stupid. So like for instance, I have a, a guy I use for any system administration stuff. Mm-hmm. Nick, he lives in like Chile or something. <laughs> I'm just like, hey, Nick, can you configure the server to da 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 da? And he's like, yeah. And it cost me like, you know, he, he's like 30 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, and he does it in half an hour. It would have taken me a day and a half of research and screw yeah. around. It's kind so of easy, dumb, yeah. You know, kind of inefficient. In I mean, if you just you really just want to spend your weekend doing it, fine. So I, I see it's interesting. The same thing. It's like, right, you know, so it, would you say that a success as a you know, in in in, a, in sort of an entrepreneur role at JPL depends on maybe the 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 um the power of your personal network. Like I just Absolutely. know all the right people, and I can just pull this stuff together. Yeah, and some one of the things I've been working on at JPL is um, we had all of the new hires that come in, and mm. we had an orientation program for them, but it was very brief. Mm. And so I was working on a program to give them a more extended orientation. Right. And so it's like, oh, okay, every week we're going to meet You know where the dinner. bathrooms are and you know where the dining yeah, hall is. You yeah. know where to get a badge. That's but the way it I'm going to tell you actually how to get stuff done here. And so we kind of had this program once a week. We would meet and have dinner. And, you know, it got up to, I think this year, something like 80 people. Mm-hmm. And so, but then the true thing that you're doing, you're giving them the little bits of knowledge they need to orient themselves in the organization, but you also giving them the network right from the get-go to say, right. you have, you know, somebody in every division that's really important you can just pick up the phone and and i found that just being so embedded in the robotics teams and knowing all these mechanical engineers i have so many ideas about random things i would like to build but i just never do them because it's so much invested you're not a mechanical engineer and you have other stuff to do right so then you know now i'm kind of like oh you know what i wish i had like a door knocker that looked like the axle rover and they're like oh we can make that 
And, you know, we could make that in a J. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay, sure. <laughs> and then, of course, you get them thinking about it, and then they just show up and they just do it. Right. And now you got them thinking yeah. about it. And now they yeah, just want you to got do all it. these cool people. So, and then vice versa, you know, I'm kind of, they're kind of like, oh, I wish I had this mysterious cave to operate my robot in. I'm like, yeah, I know a cave. Yeah, I know a cave. Like, right. Exactly. I'll take you there. <laughs> so, I think it just goes to show you, like, even in something as intensely nerdy as JPL or space exploration, it, the social skills are incredibly valuable. Oh, yeah. Right? That's probably a big differentiator and, between people who find great success versus people who don't, right? Because they can, like right. target, you pull the And resources. we kind of see this in um, the difference between the kind of subsystem engineer and the systems engineer, too. If you're in a subsystem, and you can be this socially, too, you're kind of really good at something in your domain and you can get really deep into it and you're an expert. And if people know you're an expert, they'll call you and they'll get you to do stuff. Yeah. Um, but then the systems engineer thinks, okay, what is needed? Who's needed where? Who do I know? And then how do you put the whole system together? And so that person has to be very social, I think. Mm -hmm. And they have to know a lot of people and they know how, how to manage people and talk to people. Convince um, people to help them. Because or to, it's so, yeah. the systems are so complicated and you can't just look at it from a high level. Actually, sometimes the most inane, tiny little detail is the most important thing that ruins the mission. <laughs> so Yeah, well, we know that in terms of software, I tell you, right? Yeah, yeah. you got to get to somebody eventually, especially when you're manufacturing things. And we, we contract out a lot of that or we get it from vendors. Um, but then you have to have someone in. I think there was someone whose sole job was just go around to these chip manufacturing places and make sure their chips were like exactly manufactured to some specific tolerance. Right. And then this person knew everything about those tolerances on those chips. So you need those people. Right. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> and then you need the person who knows that such a person even exists because right. they're always off lab in a chip factory somewhere. Right. Right. <laughs> like, so the, um, it seems like it's like, it's valuable. It's also, it's valuable to develop a very particular expertise. Mm -hmm. The reason, like, why are you here? Like, I know this thing. But also being aware, having some basic knowledge and awareness of lots of things, right? Yes. So you can synthesize better, right? If you're like, right. well, I just know this one thing, right? Then you're kind of limited. Then you're de totally dependent on other people to come to you and put your stuff in context. Right. But you, for you to create context, you have to kind of be studying up, reading about stuff, know it to us, you know, beyond a surface level, but, you know, obviously not an expert, but you're like, okay, like I can talk robotics or I can talk, you know, whatever, astrodynamic or whatever. Yeah. Do, do they have like um, talks and lectures in different departments and say, okay, yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to do at least two of these a week as part of my continuing education <laughs> for a scientist. Sort yeah, of thing. I mean, sometimes it's hard because a lot of the talks and lectures that they give are at the expert level. And so if you just walk in as a, someone who doesn't know what's going on, you understand maybe the first slide, maybe, and then right. you're kind of lost after that. And so part of what we were trying to do with our orientation thing is we have a general group that was started with my friend and it's a support group for new researchers. Mm -hmm. And part of that was, okay, roboticists, Will you explain what actuators are and what these kinds of joints are to all of us who are not roboticists? And then right. so we did a rotating thing. And my part of that was the tour of the planets. And so every month I would give a lecture about a different planet, starting with mm -hmm. Mercury and ending up at Pluto. Nice. <laughs> and nice. to just be like, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Pluto isn't a planet anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. or so we're now, is it a planet again? I mean, what, what are we it's doing? It's a dwarf here? planet. Okay. So it's okay. Yeah. All right. I give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you guys keep changing up what you know yeah we my last lecture to... it's like pluto um the kuiper belt objects and the edge of the solar system right which are another spacecraft just crossed actually voyager 2 right think, just crossed into the interstellar medium <laughs> so, so it sounds like your your job sounds like it's kind of a blast in a sense that like you actually get a paycheck, but you're sort of an entrepreneur. So you're you're out there kind of freestyle, add a little this, we'll do that, you know, right, I gotta right, I have to get, you know, I have to fund certain projects. So you're but you're still you're still getting paid every yeah, month. Yeah. So the nice thing about it, there are true freelance scientists where they say if they don't fill their paycheck all the way up, then they just don't get paid. And so they'll make their paycheck larger than it should be so that you can live on a third of that. Yeah, and, true you know, consultant, right? It's all, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then at JPL, it's still, you always have the stress of trying to fill your paycheck. Um, you have to find work to fill that. And so you you're don't, always what dealing. If you don't, what happens? Um, but if you don't, usually there's enough opportunities so that they'll be able to put you on something. And so some friendly managers, you probably say, hey, I, okay, you yeah, need, you need like, X number of hours. It might be not be something that you want to do per se. You know, there's very few people that then would say, they'd say, you can't, f if you continue to not try and you're really not filling your paycheck, then eventually they'd probably let you go. Right. Um, but as long as you keep trying, there's always a lot of shortfalls like, oh, I was on this mission and I had you know, one FTE on the mission and then the mission crashed. <laughs> what do you do right. with all those people? So they try and absorb you. So it's a nice uh, kind of safety. And some people are helping each other. and Right. Yeah. Well, what about, okay, so you're a... I think I have to go soon. Yeah. Okay. So just Wow, time goes by quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have one question I wanted to ask. Okay, okay. Let me just like, check. What, what tips would you give to someone who wanted to? Yeah, I'm going to get, I'm gonna get to that. Okay. Get. So I have two questions then. Um, yeah. So you're a, you're a scientist. You have a PhD. So you, get, you have the freedom and flexibility of stuff. Is the same thing go for people who are engineers with undergraduate master's degrees or there's sort of levels about what they get to do? I mean, I, I imagine engineer doesn't, isn't a PI. Is that right? That's right. The engineer can be the PI of a technology proposal or something. Okay. Um, but the engineers are more, especially if you have a bachelor's degree or master's degree, then you'll be hired by a particular project or particular section of JPL and you'll have a specific job. So in that case, your supervisor finds work for you mm -hmm. and it's not as entrepreneurial. And um, so you, you have decreased risk and then, but you also don't get to work on your own stuff. Right, I see. So yeah, so nice. if you can, you can try and break out of that. So you're an engineer and you're on a flight project, for example, and you're, they're saying, okay, you have to do this vibration test and you just do that. That's your job. So you have to do all of that. But if in your extra time, you're kind of like, oh, I'm also writing this technology proposal. Mm -hmm. When this work kind of winds down, maybe your supervisor is like, oh, okay, I'm trying to find work for you. And you're like, ah, I, I want my own money. Then you might be able to work on your own stuff. Oh, um, but cool. it's definitely less common and more difficult as an engineer. Um, it's, the engineers at the PhD level definitely do that a lot more. So the, this is an instance where getting a PhD is extremely valuable. So this is the kind of stuff you want to do, right? right. And people say, well, I don't need a PhD and, you know, and whatever. But, yeah, you, uh, can, yeah. Uh, you can get into the research without a PhD. But it helps a lot to well, have the background in research. That's what a PhD is. It trains you to do independent yeah research, and you have right? a publication about. record and that really helps you get grants funded and yeah yeah um so i guess the i mean this your life sounds amazing 
Sounds really cool. I mean, is it is it sounds like it's a lot of what you had kind of hoped it would be, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Cause you, I yeah, I love my job. It's great. I mean, it's spent. It takes up an enormous amount of my time. <laughs> but if you my love what you're is, doing, yeah. it's like, well, I just yeah, it, it's I, like a job and a hobby and a vacation and whatever else. It's like being a writer or a painter. I just what yeah, you do. It's, it's a passion. I so I love it. Yeah, you don't really need a hobby when you're doing this kind of thing. Yeah, because right? you're kind of like they're like, oh, take some time off and have fun. Uh, I don't know. I think sending robots to the moon is fun. (laughs) So why don't I just do that? (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you pay me? Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. So then, so then my question is, um, you know, what's your advice for, you know, young people who would be interested in, in, in doing something like this? I mean, let's, let's say if, you know, starting in high school or in college or whatever, I mean, you say, okay, like, you know, maybe not just geology specifically, but it's like, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to work in a place like JPL and, you know, work on missions and run my own missions. And what would you say? What, what's the, what's the, of what you've learned? Yeah. What are the key things that they should be spending time getting better at? And what were the things that they should just focus on accomplishing or doing over? Um, know? I think when you're in your uh, college level and graduate level, that's when you really get your technical chops. And so you should go really in depth in whatever your field is. So take as much math as you can, you know, learn your technical field as be an absolute expert in whatever you're doing and right. try and get to the best school, have the best GPA, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Does that help? Does that, that helps? It helps you, you in college, get into a good grad school. Right. And then the grad school is what gets you a network. Mm-hmm. And all the people that I went to grad school with, they're all like great planetary scientists. And so the mm-hmm. fact that I can reach out to them and they know everything, they're experts in their field, that's really, really valuable. So once you're in grad school, your grades don't matter quite as much, but kind of just suck out as much knowledge as you can from those classes because you won't really get that chance again. And then there's on top of that is the writing and speaking. So I think those mm-hmm. are overlooked, especially in the sciences. People are like, oh, I'm really good with numbers. You also have to be really good at persuading, talk, yeah. communicating and persuading people, right? It's, and people say like, oh, some people like uh, thing-oriented jobs. Some people like people-oriented jobs. In the end, I think they're all people-oriented jobs. You just find mm-hmm. that out much later. later. <laughs> yeah, often to your chagrin. Like, yeah, oh, you I thought need I could to just... know how to get along with people and you need to know how to express yourself. Yeah. And especially in writing, because that's like if you want to write proposals, and that's where almost all of that happens. And then convincing people like, oh, I want this mission. It's a lot of just going around and chatting with people. <laughs> right. And right. so that's important as well. Oh, that makes sense. Well, I know you got to get back to uh, planning missions and, and stuff. So we'll let you, uh, let you get out of here. But we really appreciate you coming by and spending some time with us. This has been a fascinating conversation. And uh, Justin, thanks for uh, putting this all together. Yeah, thank you. All right. right. That's a wrap. We're out. Awesome.